Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 67. In this episode, I'll discuss the topic about behavioral finance and how it may be impacting your financial decisions and financial behavior and ultimately potentially costing you money. I know personally, behavioral financial concepts and biases in my financial decision making affects me and personally has costed and is likely costing me money when it comes to my investments. But I feel that if you understand these biases and understand these potential concepts, then if you can minimize the biases and use those concepts to your advantage, then the chances of you you know, making bad financial decisions is lower. But more importantly, you can make financial decisions empowered with this knowledge. Um, so I think it's important people are aware that their behaviors can severely impact their financial health. Now, I'm not going to be talking specifically about saving or spending, etc., because that's an ultra-personal sort of lifestyle dependent, but more so it's to do with investing culture when it comes to personal finance. Now, before I go on, disclaimer as usual, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, and I'm not a financial planner, nor do I ever claim to be. So please do your due diligence before changing your finances based on what I say. These podcast episodes are for your learning and for your entertainment only. Always please consult a professional for financial advice. Now, those that are new to this channel, um, my basic premise here is to pay yourself first concept. In my humble view, there are five main steps to absolutely master before you do anything with your finances. And this basically sums about behaviors affecting finances from a saving, spending, and investing point of view. So I feel that step one, you must pay yourself. You must save at least 20% of your after-tax money um, and put it aside for yourself. That is your, that is your pay-yourself money. Step two, you must take that money and invest it for the future into something that you understand. Put it away forever, never to be touched until retirement. Now, if you don't understand it, then learn about it, understand it before you put money into it. Step three, part of those investments, hopefully you will get some income from them, some dividends. Make sure that you take those dividends don't blow them and don't spend them. Reinvest it to your investments. So always reinvest dividends. Step four, do this for the long term, 20, 30, hopefully 40 years. If you're in your 20s and you're listening to this podcast episode and you're listening to my channel, then please invest for the long term, save for the long term, and obviously you know reduce your expenses um, as much as you possibly can. Um, and do it for the long term. So if you did it for 40 years as a 20-year-old, by the time you're 60, you know, you'd have hopefully more money than you ever imagined that you probably needed. And step five, all of these steps, if you can just automate it, and this is my favorite step because if you automate this, then the chances of you missing a step 
the chances of you forgetting to invest or forgetting to pay yourself um, is very, very low. So if you follow these steps, then you're likely to have more money than you ever thought possible in your retirement. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness, but allows you to do things to help yourself, but more importantly, help the people around you. Now, before we get on to the main topic of behavioral finance, um, I had a couple of questions recently about you know lump sum investing versus dollar cost averaging. Um, now, just for the newcomers, I'll just you know basically um, you know define both of them. So, lump sum investing just means if you have a hundred thousand dollars, do you take that hundred thousand dollars and put it into the stock market day zero today? Um, and that's that's you know pretty easy to do. You know, be paid $100,000 into a Vanguard investment fund. Uh, pick one that you want. I invest in the ASX 300. Um, and that's it. Um, and basically, that investment produces dividends over the long term. You reinvest that and Bob's your uncle. You don't need to worry about it. Now, dollar cost averaging just means that out of that $100,000, you may choose to break it up into, you know, 10000 buckets of money. So basically $10,000 in bucket one, $10,000 in bucket two, and then you may choose to invest $10,000 into the Vanguard investment fund um, each month, which means over 10 months, uh, you would have invested $100,000. So in sort of in the medium term, you end up with the same amount uh, that you've invested from your own money into these funds. It's just that option one is putting it all, you know, all together in day zero, uh, option two is breaking it up and doing smaller sums of investment and on a monthly or fortnightly basis, okay? So which one is better? I think that's the wrong question. Um, if you if you have a look at the evidence uh, historically, this is based on data from the ASX, uh, also from the S&P 500 and um, major European markets. If you look at the evidence, the person that puts the money in as a lump sum is most of the time going to be better off in the long run as opposed to the person that invests $10,000 a month for 10 months. Um, And that's because um, over the long run, the stock market historically has gone up and it's likely to go up, maybe not at the huge rises in the past, like 9%, 10% a year, maybe 6%, 7% a year, which is what future growth is likely to be. But over the long term, the lump sum investor is likely to do better than the dollar cost averager. But who has $100,000 to invest in the first place? Now, I don't know about you, but not many people have $100,000 lying around in their bank account as disposable money that they can just use to invest. So most people don't have that sort of money, so they just, quote unquote, dollar cost average percentage of their income into the investment funds. So now this second sort of explanation that I've had is not really dollar cost averaging because dollar cost averaging strictly by definition is you take a lump sum and you break it up into little bits and pieces and then invest in intervals, right? People don't have lump sums to invest mostly, so they just invest a portion of their income. Now that's technically not dollar cost averaging, but you know, in effect, it kind of is, and in effect, you're going to have the end result are very, very similar. So, if you, you know, if you're a purist investor, then yes, a lump sum investing investing technique is going to be better off in the long run. Um, but 
if you don't have that sort of money, then dollar cost averaging is the way to go because you just take a percentage of your income and put it away, which is basically the premise of this entire channel, right? So, and just automate it on a weekly, fortnightly, monthly basis, whatever it is um, the interval might be. So, hopefully that sort of answers. I've, I've had a few questions, you know, what would you do with, you know, $50,000 or $20,000, et cetera, et cetera. Um, personally, um, you know, I'd probably just put it all in as a lump sum when I first started investing. That's exactly what I did. And I'm glad I did it because I started investing when the ASX was like, I think it was 3,000 odd or 4,000 odd points. And look at it now, it's 7,000. So had I broken that up over a few years, then, um, you know, I would not have had a significant um, growth in the value of my investments. Um, so hopefully that sort of answers a bunch of questions that I've had in relation to dollar cost averaging and lump sum investing. Now to the main topic, why talk about behavioral finance concepts when it comes to investing? Well, I get a fair amount of questions and financial questions, mainly via Facebook pages and, and, and private messaging systems, sometimes via SMS for close friends and family. Um, and the common theme is what would you do and why? Um, and I make it very clear that I'm not a financial advisor. Um, then I did a bit of researching about how humans make financial decisions. Um, and then I found that part of this process is about understanding the psychological elements of investing and how biases can really impact your investing style. This then impacts on where you end up in retirement financially because your investing style is going to end up with the amount of returns that you're going to get over the long run, which is going to end up with the amount of money that you're going to end up uh, when you retire. So basically, what is behavioral finance? Well, it's a subtopic of behavioral economics. Um, and basically, the concept is that we have a certain psychological influence and biases which affect our behavior when it comes to finances and investing. This then goes on to affect the markets and may even create market anomalies. Um, so, for example, once in a lifetime market changes uh, due to the sudden rise or sudden fall in the stock market, as did happen in 2007 and 2008 financial crisis. So I guess if you think about the stock market crashes and spikes of recent years, even in 2018, when it sort of fell by 20%, the ASX, uh, well, almost 20%, a lot of it is actually to do with behavioral finance. And that's why it's really important to be aware of the individual biases and theories within this concept. So being aware doesn't mean to avoid all of them, but it's impossible to do so. It's almost impossible to avoid all of the biases uh, in financial um, you know, behavior, but it just means you have more knowledge and you're more empowered to make financial decisions knowing that some of them are biased. So you can minimize the impact of making the wrong decision. Now, I guess I've talked a little bit about efficient market hypotheses um, and essentially what behavioral finance is sort of a rebuttal to that to say, well, efficient market hypotheses can't be correct because we are, you know, potentially getting conflicting information. So, you know, what does efficient market hypotheses mean? Um, basically, it assumes that everything that happens in the markets is efficient because it utilizes all the available information which affect the markets, and therefore the pricing of individual stocks or indexes or whatever it is, is always going to be correct. 
Now, this is pretty much a dumbed-down version of what it is, but bear with me on this. I've gone into great detail in previous podcasts, uh, particularly in the earlier episodes of this channel. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that. But essentially, Efficient Market Hypotheses basically says that the market utilizes all the available information about a particular company, particular index, particular ETF, and then the pricing is spot on because the market is efficient. But what behavioral finance tells us, on the other hand, is that humans are not always rational. And therefore, we must be making mistakes when buying and selling things, including stocks or commodities or bonds or property, whatever it is. Therefore, this means the market is not always efficient. So I guess, which one is it? And why do we make mistakes? Well, we make mistakes because we don't have self-control. We are flawed in decision-making. We are not perfect. Humans are not perfect. And part of that is to understand biases which we may have, which may lead us to make financial or investing decisions which impact our long-term returns. So if we understand this, we're less likely to make mistakes. It's not going to be zero, but less likely. We're going to be less swayed by biases and therefore have greater returns. That's the theory. If you can master behavioral finance, then you can master finance in general. It all sounds rosy and it all sounds too good to be true. Is there a perfect system? But when you think about it, that makes sense. If you can understand the concepts and the biases and behavioral finance, then you can make less mistakes when investing and therefore that affects your overall outcome when it comes to performance and long-term returns. Now, before we go on, I think for the non-medics out there, um, it's important to discuss the anatomy of the brain a little bit. So I'm going to get my medical hat on. Um, and it's going to get slightly geeky, so bear with me, because I think it's relevant and important to understand this from an anatomical perspective. Uh, the neurosurgeons l listening to this podcast episode, uh, you know who you are, or the neurologists are probably going to laugh at this sort of dumbing down version, but uh, you know, this is a very basic version because we have some non-medics uh, that listen to this as well. The brain is a very complex organ, and we know that and we understand very little about it but it has two key areas. The first area is the limbic system, which controls memories and emotions. Um, and you can imagine in financial world, that's really important because that's your decision-making system. Um, and the second part of it is a cerebral cortex, which controls your speech, your sight, your hearing, smell, logical thinking, decision-making as well. And parts of this also control body functions, arms and legs. So basically, if you were to maximize the use of both of these areas, the emotional side of decision-making and the actual decision-making, you will make less mistakes when it comes to finances and investing, okay? Now, that's a very, very soft version of the brain. Please don't assume that is going to be the brain lecture if you're going to be sitting your brain exam tomorrow or whatever, but this is a very basic understanding, and this is a financial podcast channel, not an anatomical channel, okay? So if you understand that, what happens when it comes to investing? Now, if you're investing in something, why do you do it? Why do you invest in things? Because ultimately, you want to get a profit out of it. And that profit may be monetary profit, money profit, or that profit may actually be personal satisfaction or learning or skill development that you can use in your life or in your workplace, okay? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I did an MBA degree, that's a form of investing in oneself. And hopefully after the degree, I can use the knowledge and skills developed in order to get higher up in the corporate ladder 
And by virtue of that, hopefully, I can earn a higher salary when it comes to the ability to help my financial situation. But things could go pear-shaped, right? I could do an MBA and get nothing out of it. I may not like it. I may not learn anything. And as a result, I just spent thousands of dollars on a degree for no real gain. I might not actually get a job that's worthwhile to use that MBA. So logic may have it that if I'd invested in an MBA degree, the gain from that and the loss of that are of equal value. Well, that's logic, but that doesn't happen in real life. The fear of doing an MBA and stuffing it up is going to be way more than the gain of winning with an MBA degree. So in other words, investors feel the pain more if they lost an investment or money, lost money from an investment or lost something, as opposed to gained something on that exact same investment. To use a financial example, if I spent $1,000 to buy company stock A and lost $500 on it, okay, then the result of this is going to have a greater impact on my psychology and future investing as opposed to investing $1,000 and gaining $500 from the same stock. In other words, investors are likely to be more loss-averse than be grateful that they will make money in the long run. So the pain of losing money in an investment then has a bad effect, then the investor may not be happy to accept the loss, and as a result, potentially never invest ever again, or never even start investing. Now, of course, this is a very extreme example. But I get asked this all the time. Looking back at your own habits, looking back at your own investments, how many times have you regretted not investing in the ASX 200 in the last 10 years? Okay, even in 2010, when the market had sprung up from 3,500 to like 5,000, I think it was. And now look at it. It's almost, you know, 2,000 points up from the highs of 2010. Um, So this is a classic case of loss aversion. So, or I guess in a way, you sort of just wait for that crash or you get so worried about investing and losing money, you kind of never invest. Um, And I get a lot of questions about when is the right time to invest. I feel the right time to invest is now because retrospectively, you can always look back and, you know, find the markets worse off than where they are, etc. But over the long run, the markets will go up. Now, I'm talking about the stock markets, but even the property market, right? So I bought my house back in 2009 in Melbourne. I paid top dollar. It was a very modest, really bad-looking house in a very average suburb in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. And I thought, oh, my God, I've just paid so much for this house. What a silly, silly decision. Here we are, almost you know, 10-plus years on, and it's quadrupled, if not quintupled, from what I paid for it. So... I'm laughing now because I've made money on it, or well, paper money because I live in the house, but uh, had it gone pear-shaped, um, then I may not have ever bought another house since then, and that's classic loss aversion. The human brain is wired to feel the pain of losses more than the gain of gains, basically. So coming back to that behavioral finance, and that's basically loss aversion, but coming back to the behavioral finance element of it, there are four main concepts in behavioral finance. One is mental accounting, two is herd behavior, three is anchoring, and four is self-attribution or self-confidence. And 
There are also biases associated with this. There's a bit of overlap, and we'll talk about biases a bit later in this podcast episode, but let's talk about the concepts here of behavioral finance. So what's mental accounting? I bet you a lot of you do this, and I do it, but I just didn't know that I was doing it. This is a concept in behavioral finance where people allocate money for specific purposes, right? In fact, the basic premise of this channel, I've already mentioned it, is the pay yourself concept. What am I saying? I'm saying use mental accounting. I'm saying take away 20% of your after-tax income and put it away into a bucket, into a bank account, or put it into an investment, or whatever it is. You allocate a set percentage of your after-tax income and invest it. So that's kind of like mental accounting. That money, the purpose of that is to pay yourself, for yourself, for the hard work that you've done to earn that money. But it makes no sense to do that if you had debt. And this is where mental accounting kind of leads people astray. So if you think about it, you know, people have a holiday fund, they have a car fund, they have an education fund, they have money jars for special purposes, whatever it is. It makes sense, but not when you're burning interest payments on homes and mortgages and cars and personal consumer debt, like credit cards especially. But we all do it. We do mental accounting. But to do mental accounting when you're hemorrhaging interest payments on consumer debt is silly. Um, So have a look at what you do. Are you putting aside money for holidays and things while you're burning 18% in credit card interest rates every single year? Well, take the money and pay off the credit card and then go on a holiday. You know, there's nothing wrong with going on holidays and having, you know, accounts and special purpose funds, but not at the expense of debt. So a lot of us have multiple accounts um, online. I do. When I log into my net bank, I have several accounts. Uh, I don't pay any account keeping fees. So basically each account has a purpose. Um, So money goes in account one and then gets transferred into account two. This is all sort of automated you you know, interbank transfers or inter-account transfers or BPAYs or whatever it is. So mental accounting was actually made famous in 2017 by a Nobel Memorial Prize winner. Um, I'm not going to pronounce this right, I'm sure. Is Richard Thaler, I think it is. That's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. Um, so he sort of made this very famous, um, which is quite recently. I didn't realize it was only in 2017. The second concept is herd behavior. Again, we all do this. I've done this before. So this is extremely common in the stock market, but it's actually happening right now in Australia in the property market, the fear of missing out. We need to all buy property because it's not going to be affordable in 20 years' time, so let's go borrow huge amounts of money and pay top dollar for apartments that probably won't go up in price in the next 10 years, right? So if you monitor the financial forums and Facebook forums about finances, you'll notice people recently asking about various stocks like Tesla. Is anyone buying Tesla? That get asked quite a lot. Because, you know, Tesla has gone up heaps, right? I mean, it's gone up from, you know, I think it was 300 bucks last year. Now it's, you know, hitting close to 900 bucks it went up to. And then it quickly came back down to the high 700s. And now it's gone back up again. The Shanghai factory has been uh, opened because of the coronavirus scare has gone down, you know. And um, so, again, similarly in 2007, see what happened to the stock market. Everyone pulled their money out of the market as a result, we ended up in a financial crash. Now, there were other, you know, there were other issues with the 2007 financial crisis. Obviously, the subprime mortgage crisis and all that sort of stuff. But it's herd behaviour. You know, you look online, you research on forums, you you talk to people, your neighbours, your family, friends. Hey, look, invest in this. That's the next new thing, and people just put all their money in. 
So herd behavior is very common in investing and it's happening right now in the property market. Definitely common in the financial markets and potentially creates major gains, but also major losses for the average investor if they're not aware that what they're doing is actually herd behavior. Anchoring is the other concept. Uh, It just means basically the investor gets fixated on the purchase price of a stock or an object and uses that as a reference point and then makes decisions on future sales or buying of that stock. But the actual purchase price has nothing to do with it. And you need to analyze a stock based on the current market conditions. Um, Another example is the stock market now is ASX 200. If you're looking at it, it's reaching new heights. And as a result, people use this as a reference point and make decisions on whether to invest or not, rather than looking at current economic climates and business climates. So, for example, heaps of people have remarked on forums and on Facebook and even private messaged me saying, look, I'm not investing now because the stock market is too high. That is their reference point. Um, So as a result, they think that the stock market will not go up anymore in the future. Now, you and I know that no one knows what the stock market's going to do in the future, right? But to use today's stock market as a reference point, I mean, that is anchoring. You're anchoring, you're fixated on the purchase price or the index price or whatever it is or the ETF price. Um, and, and this can happen with other types of investments as well. Property is a great example, right? I mean, I use my, my, my reference point for my home that I live in is when I bought it in 2009. When I thought I paid top dollar for it, I made a mistake. I was actually pretty upset after I bought it. I mean, I can't believe I just spent this much amount of money on a crummy little house in a modest suburb. But now I'm using that as a reference point and going, wow, well, well done, Devraga. You had a great decision. Um, you knew it all along. Now, that's my reference point. Even I sort of use anchoring. Um, that, that's, a, that's a huge sort of financial concept that you probably need to understand. You're probably doing it every day of your lives. The last sort of behavioral financial concept is self-attribution, right? Basically, self-confidence, right? And this, you know, I can sum it up by using a driving analogy. You know, I bet all of us think, including me to some extent, we are all above average drivers. I know I am, right? I'm an awesome driver. I'm better than the average and I make less mistakes than the others, right? I mean, this is what we all think. So if an investor falls into the trap of making decisions thinking their knowledge of a specific area is higher than others, that is self-attribution, self-confidence. This happens in medicine, all right? So this happens, um, a lot of people think that, uh, and some doctors as well think that uh, they're above average investors, right? Because they're above average savers, they're above average spenders, they're above average investors, they have a lot of knowledge about investing because they've done above average all of their lives. Most doctors have done well at school. They've done well at medical school. They've got into specialty training or subspecialist training, whatever it is. So they've always had to compete, right? Therefore, the extraction of that is they must be really good at other things as well. I can tell you the two things are irrelevant. You know, obviously, just because you're a great doc or a great surgeon doesn't mean you're a great investor, doesn't mean you're great at finances. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I started this channel, because that was one of the common misconceptions in the public that, uh, you know, doctors are great at doing everything. Well, they're not. In fact, a lot of doctors are actually broke because they don't know how to manage their finances. They're easy scam targets. They don't know what's going on. They don't know where the money goes. They don't know how much money they earn. Um, uh, you know, I've had people, you know, very, very smart 
specialists who make a lot of money, but they're just not able to quantify how much money they make because it's from various sources and they've never really taken that into account. And more importantly, they're not able to quantify how much money they spend. So as a result, you get this sort of potential risk of, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm above average in everything, therefore I must be good at finances. How can I be stupid at finances? I can't be. Um, so, and they get taken for a ride, particularly from their financial advisors, of course. Now, that's the financial concepts for behavioral finance, okay? What about the biases? Okay, we've talked about concepts, now let's talk about biases. The first biases you must be aware of is disposition bias. What does that mean? There's a classic case of holding on to your losing investments in the hope they will return to neutral or make you money in the long run. This has happened in my family, right? Investors tend to gloat about the winners early, and as a result, may even sell and take the profit. Fine. You want to sell your investment, make your money, live a happy life. That's fantastic. But they don't like talking about their losers. And some of them may even hang on to their losers rather than rationally analyzing them to ensure they're not hanging on to junk investments just because they hope one day the market will go up again and that stock will come back to what they purchased for or go up higher than what they purchased for and make a profit. That's disposition. This has happened in everyone. I've done it. Family's done it, friends have done it, um, bought something, it's gone down, and they just hang on to it because they think one day it'll come up. The second bias is confirmation bias. I've done that. Investors tend to accept information that already confirms their views. I've actually used confirmation bias in this podcast episode. You may not have understood that, but let's go through it. For example, the stock market over the long run always goes up. That is my view. Um, because that's what's happened historically. Uh, and this is something I've said all the time, because technically, that's what's happened historically. But we all know, and I make it a point, that past performance has no bearing on future performance. Um, so I have this confirmation bias, and I've said it in this podcast episode, uh, because over the long run, I think and I believe that the stock market will go up. Now, I could be wrong, but I could be right, and I've used that as a view, and I've confirmed that. So confirmation bias, um, it's pretty hard to pick out, but if you're aware of it, if you understand it, then it's important. You're less likely to have such biases. Experiential bias, that's the other one. So let's talk about that. This is when people think about the last financial crisis, so let's say 2007 or 2008, and then use that to be afraid of something which may happen again, right? Now, the classic case of this is basically go to YouTube and type in stock market crash or property market crash in Australia or the coming crash, whatever it is, and you'll see a lot of videos about people worried about the stock market will crash, it's too high, how is this even sustainable? Uh, and we've had crashes before. So, you know, it's basically doomsday predictions. And look, the American stock market is crazy high, right? And went down to like, Six and a half thousand during the global financial crisis, and now it's, I think it's nudging 30,000 in the Dow Jones. So the recency of those memories may haunt investors forever, affecting rationality when it comes to investing. And same with the property bubble, right? People are like, oh, prices are so high. We've had property market crashes in the past, and therefore everything's going to come crashing down. So experiential bias is, is a real thing. Uh, and again, I've, I've had this bias before. Um, so the experience of such a negative event in recent times meant it makes 
you know, it just means money never to invest. Um, but, you know, look what's happened. Um, the ASX is back up again and higher than before. The Dow Jones is back up again, higher than before. So if you had that bias in you and you got afraid and didn't invest, you would have lost a lot of money. Loss aversion we've talked about, that's a form of bias as well. Um, a great weight is placed on losses when compared to gains. So I won't go into that again. I've explained that hopefully as eloquently as I possibly can in this episode and in previous episodes. And lastly, there's familiarity bias, right? I'm a big sucker for this. So I always say, I don't invest outside of Australia because I know very little about overseas markets. Yeah, I follow the S&P 500, I follow the American market, but I don't live there. I don't know the intricacies of the tax code. I don't know the intricacies of their lifestyle, except that we have a better lifestyle. I'm a bit biased, obviously, being an Aussie. I get asked this all the time, right? And this is my response. Why don't I invest outside of Australia? Because I understand this country. I live in this country. Um, I live in the best city in the world. I might just plug that in just to um, annoy all the Sydney siders and other major great cities of Australia. This is what I understand and this is what I prefer. Just like I don't buy property, uh, I don't have property in Queensland, right? I know some of the listeners may have property interstate. I don't have property internationally. I don't have property in other states, other cities, because I live in Melbourne. I understand Melbourne market. So I own property here. And very similarly, I understand the Australian stock market. So I invest in the Australian stock market. Yes, which means is there a huge miss out on the huge gains in the overseas markets like the US, emerging markets, China, India, Brazil, and even parts of Africa? Absolutely. I've missed out on huge gains. But I understand that. I'm wearing it. I own it. And that's okay. Now, if you understand it and if you want to you know, invest somewhere else, that's completely fine. But this is a familiarity bias that I particularly possess. So that's about it for this episode. We've talked a lot about behavioral finance, the concepts and the biases associated with it. And I find the concepts in behavioral economics and finance very interesting and how my decision making is affected. We can only reduce our biases as much as we can. We can't be perfect, but knowing and acknowledging our biases will hopefully lead to lesser mistakes on in our investing life and financial life. So Next time you invest, next time you're looking at your personal finances, next time you make a major financial decision, think about how biases may be affecting how you invest um, and hopefully try and reduce those biases as much as you possibly can and at the very least understand those biases as much as you possibly can when you make those investments. So thanks for listening. Questions and comments always welcome as you know. Message me on Facebook or join up to Devaraka Personal Finance Facebook page or CastBox messaging system or SMS for those who know my number. Um, now, this podcast channel is available on CastBox.fm app, um, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and also via the website devraga.com.au. Now, remember, um, sorry, that's devraga.com, beg your pardon. Remember, pay yourself first, always, and get those five steps down pack please don't borrow money. Debt is generally bad, particularly consumer debt. And next time you invest, try to reduce your biases. And most of all, don't forget to invest. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 67. And thank you very much for listening. As, as always, stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.